This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 101. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, when are responses due to document requests that are embedded in a notice of taking deposition dues as tecum? And when is the production of documents itself due? Hey, everybody. I hope you are doing fantastic as always. For me, I am actually back from a short working trip to Nashville, which gave me a chance to see a few sites during breaks and to stay at another unbelievable hotel, this time the Gaylord Opryland Resort. Now, if you do a lot of traveling, you learn that sometimes it's not just picking the right hotel, uh, but also picking the right room. So here's my insider tip on this place. If you look online, you'll see that they describe both interior rooms and exterior rooms. And at first, I really had no idea what that meant. But as I dug into it, I realized that the exterior rooms, the ones labeled that way, as best I can tell, looked out over the parking lot and some other stuff around the property. But the interior rooms are the ones to get. Those are the rooms that have large balconies that surround this lush tropical forest. There's no better way to describe it in the center atrium of the hotel. Huge waterfall, beautiful trees and shrubs, tropical bar, and an open-air restaurant, all under a covered roof in the center of this hotel and only visible from the rooms with an interior view. So if you're headed to or in the area of Nashville, I certainly recommend that. I'm not getting a dime for recommending it, but that's definitely the place to stay. It's close to everything and amazing, but you've got to ask for that interior room. All right, anyway, today I wanted to share an insight about dealing with document requests that are embedded within a deposition notice, typically referred to as a deposition ducis tecum, which is Latin, as you know, for basically bring these things with you. And of course, the document request can be part and parcel of the notice itself or an attached exhibit. Uh, so the question is, if I get a deposition notice with document requests embedded or attached, and the deposition isn't for a few months, when do I have to serve my responses and objections to those requests? And when do I have to produce the documents? And another question, what if the deuces tecum list of things that the notice wants you to bring with you or your client contains 300 requests? Do you need to show up at the deposition with a U-Haul? Is there some limit on the extent to which a deposition notice can command you to bring documents? All right, as always, we'll jump right into it. But before I get to that, there is one other thought I wanted to quickly share with you about something that was brought to my attention last week. Uh, a friend of mine sent me an email, forwarded me an email that came from a very large national vendor of services that litigators routinely use associated with depositions. Now that email highlighted a comment from a lawyer affiliated in some way with the vendor, I'm not really sure, and who was quoted in the vendor's email as saying that a trial attorney, quote, must take every deposition as if the witness were at trial, close quote. And the question I got from my friend was, do I agree with that? Well, I, I personally don't know the lawyer that was referenced in that email, and so I don't know really on what basis or in what context that statement was made, but apparently that was the only line quoted in the uh, email. But if you're an avid listener of this podcast, and I know you are, uh, you'll know that I believe that just about every case is different, has different facts, different judges, 
different opposing lawyers, different claims, different likelihoods of going to trial, different insurance carriers uh, who look for different facts or factors in the case, and so on. So you know that I take, and that I believe you must take, a very nuanced, individualized approach to your deposition plan and strategy. You've got to develop a deposition plan based on the case that's in front of you at the moment, and not as a generic litigation lifestyle, which is to say your race car needs to have more than one gear, which is also to say that you're likely to miss opportunities for spectacular results on a case-by-case basis if you take the same deposition approach in every case, no matter what. I most definitely do not take every deposition as if I and the witness were in trial. Sometimes my depositions are very detailed. Sometimes they're very short for critical, strategic, and tactical reasons. Sometimes, as you've heard me say, I skip depositions entirely of certain witnesses because I want to hit a particularly deceptive deponent at trial fresh. So with due respect to the lawyer quoted in that email, I'm just not a fan of the use of maxims, that's M-A-X-I-M-S, in developing a smart deposition strategy. Maxim as in short, pithy statements that express a general truth or rule of conduct, like live every day as if it's your last, the pen is mightier than the sword, all good things come to those who wait, or you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And circling back, take every deposition as if you're in trial. So I would respectfully tell you the opposite. I would say, don't do that. You're going to miss opportunities and you're going to create opportunities for an adversary. You might, if this becomes your known deposition MO, uh, cause them, cause adversaries to over-prepare. You also expose your trial examination, giving opponents plenty of time to improve and fine-tune their answers for trial. Finally, you acclimate the opposing witness to your particular style. So there's really not going to be a surprise if the case, in fact, goes to trial. So I take a very different view. Don't take all your depositions if you were in a courtroom and as if the witness is on the stand. You're not a mass producer of paintings. You're Picasso, you're Renoir, you're Van Gogh, you're Rembrandt, you're Salvador Dali, Jackson Pollock. Well, maybe not those last two. But be an artist in your depositions, not a mass producer. All right? Okay, so let's turn to the topic at hand today. So when are your responses and objections, and when is the actual production of documents, due in response to a notice of taking deposition deuces tecum? And this inquiry for purposes of today's episode is limited to parties. Non-parties that get a subpoena deuces tecum generally don't benefit from the same time frames as parties do. So today we're just talking about situations where you as a litigator for a party has received a notice of taking deposition deuces tecum and what to do if the list of documents to be produced at deposition embedded in that notice is hideously long and really includes requests that have nothing to do with the deposition itself. All right, here's the answer and let's start with the basics. Federal Rule 30, which I frequently refer to just as the main deposition rule, specifically says that a document request can accompany a deposition notice. Federal Rule 30B2, and of course the supermajority of states that pattern their rules after the federal rule, says that 
the notice to a party deponent may be accompanied by a request under Rule 34 to produce documents and tangible things at the deposition. Rule 34, in turn, provides that the party to whom a document request is directed, quote, must respond in writing within 30 days after being served. That's Rule 34B2A. So a party has 30 days within which to respond to a document request, even if the request is embedded in a notice of taking deposition, and without regard to the actual date of the scheduled deposition. In other words, don't wait until the day of the deposition to file your responses and objections because your court may find that you've lost your objections, you've waived them, because nothing in Federal Rule 30 or 34 or your state equivalents, which is to say nothing in the main deposition rule and nothing in the rule on document requests, adds time to the due date of your responses and objections just because the requests were attached or embedded within a deposition notice. And we've got some cases in the show notes for you that say exactly that, including the R.M. Dean case and the Gilbert case. It's easy to understand how some litigators can get confused about how to deal with document requests that are part and parcel of a deposition notice. And that's because the response and objections are due on a different schedule than the actual production itself. Rule 30B2 says that the actual production is due to take place, quote, at the deposition, close quote. But the response and objections are governed by the time frame in Rule 34, which is 30 days from the notice. Now, sometimes there's even confusion among litigators as to when the production has to be made. Again, Rule 30B2 clearly says that if you embed your document request in the deposition notice, then the non-noticing recipient of your notice can produce the documents at the deposition. That's the language of the rule. Footnote here, so that can put you at a disadvantage then if you routinely attach document requests to your deposition notices, but you actually need the documents before the day of the deposition. That was an issue that came up in the older Shaw case in the show notes, where the requesting party was expecting that the documents would be produced before the day of the deposition. The court there said, no, the rule says a document request that's part and parcel of a notice of taking deposition requires production of the documents at the deposition itself. So to summarize, if you are a party and you've received a notice of taking deposition duces tecum that includes a request for documents, serve the responses and objections on or before 30 days from your receipt of the notice and serve the documents at the deposition. Then, if there are issues about your objections or your production, the requesting party, the noticing party, can move to compel and or you can move for a protective order well ahead of the date of the actual scheduled depositions. In other words, you'd proceed as you would normally in any discovery dispute over a document production request that's not attached to a deposition notice. All right, some more questions you might have. Well, what if the document request has 300 categories and goes way beyond anything that's going to be covered at the deposition. We've all seen document requests that are crazy long, but what to do when you get a request for documents that's part and parcel of a deposition notice? Well, the committee notes to the 1970 amendment to the main deposition rule, rule 30, says the following, and it really helps shed light on this problem. 
So the notes to the 1970 amendment say as follows. It's a little bit long, but I'll quote it. Whether production of documents or things should be obtained directly under Rule 34 or at the deposition under this rule will depend on the nature and volume of the documents or things. Both methods are made available. When the documents are few and simple and closely related to the oral examination, ability to proceed via this rule will facilitate discovery. If the discovering party insists on examining many and complex documents at the taking of the deposition, thereby causing undue burdens on others, the latter may, under Rules 26C, Protective Orders, or 30D, terminating a deposition in progress due to undue burdens or harassment, may apply for a court order that the examining party proceed via Rule 34 alone. In other words, to sever the document request from the deposition. So that committee note authorizes you as a litigator who's received this kind of burdensome notice to either seek a protective order in advance of the deposition or to terminate the deposition and seek a protective order once the deposition is in progress if only at that point it became apparent that proceeding in that manner was oppressive or unduly burdensome. And I suspect you'll have a very receptive audience in your judge if in fact the requests are by virtue of their number or nature truly are oppressive. And that really makes sense, doesn't it? In federal court at least, you get seven hours by default under the rules to question a witness. And no one is intelligently going to go through thousands and thousands of pages of documents when this is their only opportunity to question the deponent. Uh, so where the embedded request really seems to go beyond anything that could be pertinent to the deposition that's forthcoming, uh, a motion for protective order is a great option. And for those of you who decide, well, let's see what happens. Let's go ahead with the deposition without seeking a protective order in advance. If in the middle of the deposition, it becomes apparent that the production request and the way the documents are being used is oppressive or unreasonable, you haven't forfeited your right at that point to terminate the deposition under Rule 30 and to then seek a protective order. All right, related question. What if in addition to responding and or objecting to the embedded request within the 30 days allowed by rule, we just go ahead and produce the documents at the same time? We don't wait for the deposition. Do we have to bring that stack again to the deposition because that's what the notice says? I think the answer to this question is really situational. But I would start with an email or a phone call, probably an email, to the opposing lawyers pointing out that you've already produced the documents responsive to the requests in the deposition notice and asking them to confirm back in writing that you need not bring another duplicate set. If they agree, obviously no problem. If they don't agree, you'll probably need to decide whether to bring them or seek a protective order. Now, obviously, if the production isn't large, isn't complicated, probably makes more sense just to bring another set of the documents to avoid an unnecessary battle because that's, in fact, what the deposition notice says you must do, absent objection or court relief. If the production was large and costly, though, and you can't get agreement from the noticing lawyers that you are relieved of the obligation to produce that set of discovery again, you may well want to seek a protective order at that point. So some of this stuff is just going to depend on the size of the production, the complexity, and the cost of duplicating the production again at the deposition. That's actually an issue that came up in the Sandler case in the show notes. The defense counsel there moved for a protective order saying exactly that. 
we've already produced documents and it doesn't make sense to do it all over again. All right, next related question. What if the embedded notice, the request for production says, bring all the originals? Well, that came up in the Richardson case in the show notes where the court faced dueling motions to compel and for protective orders. And the judge there said, except for concerns about legibility of copies, it's not really clear to the court why originals would be needed. And the judge in that case pointed to Federal Rule of Evidence 1003, which says, like many state court rules of evidence, but not all, that duplicates are admissible to the same extent as originals. But I would tell you that the analysis whether to bring originals or copies in light of that language in a notice is the same that you'll use in determining whether to bring an entire duplicate production that you previously sent to the noticing party. So the question on originals is, have they already been produced at some prior production? Is there inconvenience in doing so? It's all really just a balance. But do remember that these embedded requests are in fact legitimate requests for production of documents. So you've got to timely respond and timely object just as if they were sent as a freestanding request. Okay, that's it for today. Interesting topic. The clear rationale for requiring the recipient of a notice of deposition duces tecum to serve responses or objections within 30 days of receipt of the notice without regard to the actual date of the deposition is simply to ensure that the parties have time to confer about the objections, to resolve any disputes, and to seek and to get a court ruling if needed before any deposition actually takes place. Okay? Thank you as always for listening. We've got some incredible episodes coming up and think you'll find them tremendously useful in your daily deposition practice. I'll talk to you again soon.